this time I'm going to uh, lead us in our scripture reading. Um, I'm going to read from the book of First uh, Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Uh, so hear these words from the book that we love. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning. Thanks, Steve. Hey, it's nice to be back. Uh, haven't preached here in five weeks, and I think that's probably uh, a new record for me. Um, yeah, it's not a record that I am particularly proud of, uh, but I was able to do. Um, I have had records in the other way, preaching like 12 weeks in a row. Um, but it's nice to be able to get away, uh, spend some time with my family, reconnect with God, reconnect with uh, my family, reconnect with some friends. And uh, yeah, we're just, I'm excited to be back and preaching to you guys today. Uh, my name is Pastor Evan. Thanks for being here, particularly if you're new or you're visiting. It does take a lot of guts to come to a church and to come to our church the last time we're here at Klein Life. He takes even more guts, so we're thankful that you decided to join with us today. Real quick, thanks to Pastor Kyle and the leaders for holding down the fort while I was away. Can we just give them a round of applause? It's very humbling to come back and see that the church did not burn down while you were away. So the church didn't need me as much as I thought you guys needed me. So way to go, way to team together. Um, But I am happy to be back. Another quick thing, teachers, we are praying for you this week as you get back into the swing of things. I know some of you are part of those weird, funky schools, like charter schools. That that was a joke, guys. That uh, started like weeks ago. But the rest of you guys, um, we're really praying for you guys this week as you get back. We are going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3 today, so I'm going to do a lot of flipping around, but if you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to kind of be landing in there. Uh, There are some tables, um, uh, Bibles on the table in the back. If you want a Bible, take that one. That would be our gift to you. We're excited about the next chapter of our life at Liberty Northeast. Uh, God has not closed and ended the story of Liberty Northeast. Praise him for that. Uh, We are going to be moving to a new church and starting a new chapter, sorry, a new building and starting a new chapter. I had to explain to my youngest son today what that meant. He thought we were leaving all of you guys here and we were going there and he was pretty disappointed. He was like, can I still call my friends? I said, no, buddy. Remember we moved our own home our family went with us to a new house. It's the same thing. Our church family is going to go with us to a new building. So he was very relieved about that. But we're thankful for Klein Life. Klein Life has been really great to us. We've been here almost three years. Uh, I don't know if you remember this. If you were part of our church, uh, we used to meet in this this room called Room 203. Now, Room 203 is now when we're upstairs where we meet with the Liberty Kids meets 
now in rooms two, room 203. But we used to all meet in there. We used to all squeeze in there. And this was before COVID when everybody was a little freaked out about that kind of thing. But now we moved out of that from being our worship space to the room across the hall to 218. And the summer times we come down here. But that was a, a unique time. All of us kind of squeezing in there, shoulder to shoulder. Like the communion line was particularly difficult where everyone's like dodging each other. And like you're waiting in the, in the row while somebody else passes you. Right now we have a nice like two-person aisle here. We've have brought in 35 members over the past three, in, three years. We baptized 14 people in three years. We've done cleanup days, trunk or treat, Easter egg hunts here. And I know not everyone's as nostalgic as I am, but you just have to just ride the train with me. But we put these floors under your feet. We put these in for Klein Life. These ceiling tiles, I remember, do you remember the multicolored ceiling tiles? Anybody remember that? Remember there was a mural back here? We spruced up this room as a way to love Klein life and care for them. The floors next door, we redid those. Floors upstairs, we redid those. We put in the sound system and TVs that benefits us but benefits them. Um, but there's no longer a Noah's Ark mural peeking out the top of the pipe and drape back here because of you guys. And hundreds and hundreds of people have heard the gospel here at a Jewish community center, the gospel was proclaimed and we're leaving this place better than what we found it. You did that. You are leaving this place in better condition than how you found it. And so please sign that card. Please know that we are going to continue a relationship with Klein Life but please let them know through the card that you love them and you're thankful, even though we had to set up and tear down and things didn't always work the way we wanted them to work. But the people of Israel set up and tore down the tabernacle. We're moving our tabernacle over to Third Reformed, and we're going to start next Sunday at 9.30. So if you come at 10 o'clock next Sunday, you'll be a half hour late. And if you show up here, no one's going to be here except for the other people who forgot that we moved. So just write in your phones now, whatever you have to do, remember that we are going to be there next Sunday. We're excited about that. In a few weeks, we're also hoping as part of our new chapter of our church's story is that we're going to ordain our first ever elders and deacons. And we're very excited about that. And we have two elder candidates. They're both in the back there serving you guys. David and Clayton, they are elder candidates. So let's give them a round of applause. They've been in training what feels like for eternity uh, but it's been an enjoyable time. They're going to be assessed by me and some other pastors from the network. And on September 12th, members, you guys are going to vote on whether or not you receive them as your elders. We also have two deacon candidates, John Sender and Sir Lynn Devlin. Uh, could you guys just raise your hands? They're in the back. We're going to also be doing that ordaining them as well. They've gone through some assessment. And what's the cool thing about these guys, all four of them, is they've been doing the work of elders and deacons before they were elders and deacons, which is a great way to do things, right? We're kind of stamping, you've already been doing the work. Let's make this thing official, right? You, you, you're dating us. You're enga we're engaged. Let's make this thing official and have a wedding. 
right? So that's what we're doing. We want to make this thing official. And then, so what I want to talk about for the next three weeks is what are elders? What are deacons? What should we expect from them? And for some of them, for some of you, this is a new topic. You never heard of the word elders unless it was your parents telling you to respect your elders. It's a different kind of elder, but it's a church office. It's a church office title, elder. And what are deacons? Some of us don't know. And some of you have church backgrounds. You've heard these terms thrown around, but you've never actually thought about it biblically because it doesn't matter what your church denomination or your experience or what's most efficient and helpful to run a church. That doesn't matter. What matters about these terms is what does the Bible say about them? And we need to live faithfully and follow those definitions and those descriptions and those qualifications. See, God has designed two offices, which is the term that we use, elders and deacons for the task of guiding and leading a local church to fulfill their purpose in the world. That's what these guys are doing. It's a big task. They're trying to help you as a church body live out the mission of Jesus in our area, in our world. So this week we're going to talk about elders, next week we're going to talk about deacons, and then the final week we're going to talk about how this kind of all works and comes together. And then after that, we're going to move into Galatians. So look forward to that. Galatians is a a fun letter. It's all about the gospel. And my favorite thing about Galatians is that it's all about the gospel and it's written to Christians. Because Christians need to know the gospel as much as non-Christians. Every day we need to hear it. And so I hope you're uh, excited about that. Everything that's kind of looking out, here's what our calendar looks like. But today what I want to particularly talk about is how God has designed the local church to be led by men of compelling character. God's intention when he sets up his church, is that the church will be led by men who have compelling character. God has set the local church to be on mission to the region, and he entrusts certain qualified men to know, feed, lead, and protect his people. But they're supposed to be men of compelling character. They're supposed to be men that you look at and go, I want to be like them. Their character is so compelling that I'm drawn to them for some reason. So men want to lead their families like these men lead their families. Women should look at them and say, I pray that my husband leads my family like they lead their families. I pray that I would reflect these qualifications even though I don't hold the office. See, we are in a leadership crisis in the American church, particularly. Never, ever, ever in my lifetime, so it's not never, ever, ever, it's just my lifetime. Those are two things are opposed. But in my lifetime, have I never seen a moment in history where it benefits you to not be a leader? Like, it's easy for you to critique everybody who makes decisions about masks and vaccines and mandates and lockdowns. It's easy for you to critique those people because you're not in position to do it. It's always easier to steer the ship from the shore. And it benefits all of us to not be those leaders because it's so much easier to pick on them and make fun of them. And we're in this leadership crisis because even our leaders aren't people of compelling character. Do you see the place that we're in? We, can, we critique them, 
and we're not leaders, but they're also not people worthy all the time of our respect and our honor. And we're stuck in this place. Over the past year, particularly in the American church, we've seen big name pastors rise and fall. And I'm not throwing anybody under the bus. This is all online. You can find all these names. Carl Lentz, John Gray, James McDonald, and Ravi Zacharias. These men committed sins that would biblically disqualify them from pastoral leadership. And I know local churches where there have been moral failures amongst staff that led to their terminations. We are in a leadership crisis there's a popular podcast right now called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill, and it tracks the meteor, meteoric rise and fall of Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill Church in Seattle. And Mark Driscoll was known for being a bully, for instilling a culture of fear, for manipulation, spiritual abuse, and he even misused church funds to buy a bunch of his books to bump his book up on the bestseller list. And eventually, he resigned rather quickly when he's about to be disciplined by his elders. And the church closed his door months later. The church was over 10,000 people and all of a sudden, gone. Why? Because we have a leadership crisis. We have a leadership crisis because we have a character crisis. And one of the main problems with the char character crisis in the church is the damage that it does to so many people. And some of you, that's your story. Because there's a leadership crisis, which is really a character crisis, you have been damaged in the process. But God expects more from his leaders. He expects that elders of a local church to be men of compelling character, men who are still sinful and by no means perfect, but overall who should be godly, who should show Christ-like character to the people they're called to represent, love, serve. So I want to talk about why we need elders. I want to talk about what elders look like and then what elders do. So first, why do we need elders? It's a great question, right? Like, is this just something that the modern church movement made up is like hierarchies and leadership structures, right? That's something that we made up, right? It's not really something we need. But look at Matthew 9, 36 to 38. Jesus says, this is about Jesus. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We need elders to shepherd God's sheep. See, Jesus sees the people, sees the people he loves and he has compassion on them and his heart actually breaks for them. He has pity on them because why? They're like sheep without a shepherd. And he tells his disciples, the apostles, to ask God to send laborers to help out with this problem. So the apostle Peter reveals to us that's the role of elders 
to shepherd God's people. See, Peter's there. He hears Jesus say this. He says, the people are like sheep without a shepherd. And Peter picks this up in chapter five of his letter. Listen to this. He says, so I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, what? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. See, the early church's practice, particularly Paul, what he would do is he would go out, he would preach the gospel, he would plant church, churches, and he would set up elders, and then he would leave. That's his move. It's not my move, but it's his move. Set up elders and then leave. And he did it in every church. So in Acts 14, you see in verse 23, and when they, this is Paul and Barnabas, had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They set up elders in every church and then they believe. Because sheep, people were sheep without shepherds and they need shepherds. It's funny that sheep has become a bad term this past year. Sheep are people who wear masks, get vaccines, don't get masks, don't get vaccines, whatever you might be. And there was an interview floating around the internet, I don't know if you saw it this week, where a woman was saying she wasn't going to get the vaccine, and she references Matthew 25 and says she believes God is using this to separate the sheep from the goats. So the interviewer asked her, which one are you? Are you a sheep or a goat? And she quickly responds, I'm a goat because I ain't no sheep. Now, if you have a church background, it's funny because it's a complete misapplication of Matthew 25. You want to be a sheep in Matthew 25. When God's separating the sheep from the goats, you want to be a sheep. But sheep has become such a bad term in the state of affairs that we're in right now that not only are we, is there this gross misapplication of Scripture, but the term sheep has become such a bad term. But the New Testament invites us to be sheep. Led by shepherds. Jesus is the good shepherd, but also the elders of the local church shepherd the sheep. See, a, that, that means there's a distinction between the culture's use of the word and the Bible's use of the word. And honestly, if I have to choose one, I'm going to choose the Bible's use of the word. So I'm happy to be a sheep. I'm happy to be a sheep of the good shepherd. Because Jesus even tells us in Matthew 25, at the day of judgment, each of us, will, he will determine if we're a sheep or a goat. And sheep will live on to eternal life with God and goats will experience death and suffering away from him. So to be a sheep is a good thing. You want to be one of Jesus' sheep. So when I use the term sheep, don't get offended. It's actually a good thing. Because sheep are a people who've been brought into the fold by God through faith in Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit are becoming more like him. It's good to be a sheep. Sheep are the people of God in process. And some of these sheep, some of the sheep in process are called by God to be his shepherds elders 
some of the sheep, some of the people in process are called to shepherd the other sheep. And we see earlier in 1 Timothy 1 why Paul sees elders as important. Now, 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the crux. It is the central part of 1 Timothy. But why is he saying this in the first place? Because if you look at chapter 1, Paul says, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Certain persons, this is verse 6, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion. Paul, as we saw earlier, would plant churches, set up elders, and then he will leave. But something's going on at Timothy's church that is leading people into false teaching. So Paul writes this letter to Timothy, which is a public letter. It's intended to be read to everybody in the church, but addressed to Timothy because certain persons were swerving. Certain people were wandering away because sheep have a tendency to wander. And in order for Jesus' sheep to be protected, Timothy will need to lead his church in a certain way because Paul's not there. So he needs Timothy to set up his church a certain way to protect the sheep from wandering. And so we see the main gist of this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. He says, set up elders and set up deacons. And these elders shepherd the flock of God by knowing the sheep, leading the sheep, feeding the sheep, and protecting the sheep through the process of becoming like Jesus. And so that's why we need elders because we're all in process and we have a tendency to wander and we need people in place in our churches, leaders in our churches, qualified men of compelling character in our churches to draw us to Jesus. They say, no, 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 don't go that way. Please don't. I'm begging you. Sheep, do not go this way. Come back into the fold. No, no, no. Don't listen to that prosperity preacher. No, don't buy that book. No, don't be drawn into thinking this way or listen to that person online. They're drawing you away. See, the Bible knows, God knows that there's going to be constant temptation to wander away. There's going to be constant attacks. People are going to try to pull you out. People are going to try to take you from a sheep to being a goat. And Paul is saying, the New Testament is saying, set up elders to protect you from doing that. And so if what elders look like, look, they look like this. 1 Timothy chapter 3. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Paul's saying he should want to do this. You don't just fall in backwards to being an elder. You should want to be one. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And what does it mean to be above reproach? The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? How is he going to care for God's household? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puff up, puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. 
Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The church, the local church is to be led by plurality of men known for their godly character in every area of life. So Paul's saying to Timothy, in the face of false teaching, in the face of sheep swerving and wandering and going away, set up overseers, which is the word episcopae, which is where we get the word episcopal. He says, set up these overseers in the church. Now the King James translates this word as bishops and actually that gives us the wrong impression because overseer, elder, pastor are all used interchangeably in the New Testament to refer to the same office. They're all used to refer to the same position. So you see this particularly in 1 Peter chapter 5. We go back to that. So I exhort the elders, which is the word presbyterus, which is where we get Presbyterian from, among you, shepherd, which is the same word for pastor, the flock of God that is among you. So I exhort the elders, pastor, the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, which is episcopeo, the same word Paul uses in 1 Timothy 3, not in a compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. He's using the word elders, pastor, overseer, all in the same context, meaning the same office. And so Paul, in his last meeting in Acts, with the Ephesian leaders, elders in Acts chapter 20, he does the same thing. He, overseer, elder, pastor are the same office. I, Evan, the pastor, am an elder. David and Clayton, Lord willing, and if you receive them as such, will be elders who also pastor. And all of us together, elder, pastor, oversee the sheep of Liberty Northeast. It's all used interchangeably. But what, do we, what are we supposed to look like? What am I supposed to look like? What are David and Clayton supposed to look like? What are any elders in the future, pastors in the future, are supposed to look like? Well, first and foremost, they should be aspire to be an elder, as we said. No one should force them to. No one should be holding a gun to David and Clayton's head to be elders. It's too much work, too much training, too much assessment, too much dealing with difficulty to be forced to do it. You need to want to do this. Same with a pastor. Your pastor should want to be a pastor. If he wants to be something else, he should do that. It needs to be above reproach, meaning that elders need to be men of character. Now, before continuing, God has set this role to be held by men. Always in the New Testament is, elder, is an elder a man. Always. Unlike deacon, elder is always a man. Why, you ask? I do not know. But that's what God decided. I understand the cultural arguments. I understand all the different arguments that go into that. It, they're just not convincing to me, personally. But I love people who disagree with me. I don't love them because they disagree with me. I love them. They disagree with me, and I love them anyway. 
So I'm not going to get into any reasons why. I think that's kind of a waste of time to say like, well, men aren't as emotional as women. Like that's kind of messed up, to be honest, and misogynistic. So I don't know why God did it. All right? Me being truthful, I don't know why. So to be, a ma- be an elder is to be a man who's above reproach. First, he's faithful to his wife. Did you notice that? I was once at an ordination at a certain denomination, which shall remain nameless. But a friend of mine leaned over to me as these elders and pastors were being ordained. And he leaned over and he whispered in my ears. He said, you notice we never asked the candidates if they loved their wives. It was all about their theology. It was about all the things that they knew and learned. But we never asked them, do you love your wife? Prove it to me. Bring your wife in. Let your wife tell us that, he, that you love her, that you're faithful to her. They're supposed to be sober-minded, not a drunkard, and self-controlled, which basically means they need to be in the right mind to make good judgments. You can't make good judgments if you're inebriated. So an elder needs to be filled not with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So he should see marks of the fruit of the Spirit in his life. Not that he's figured it all out. We should start seeing these things in his life. He needs to be respectable. He needs to be hospitable. Hospitable doesn't mean that elders have church members over for dinner, which is nice, or they publish their cell phone numbers on the church website, which seems to be a mistake, but some people do that. The Greek word here literally means the love of strangers. He's supposed to love strangers. Hospitality, Bob Thune says, is making a place for the stranger, the sojourner, the outsider. Therefore, an elder who is hospitable lives as a missionary. He loves strangers, people who don't know Jesus, people he doesn't know, and he loves them and wants to know them. And by the time he gets to know them, he wants to love more strangers, just like the good shepherd. He's supposed to be able to teach, not violent, but gentle and not quarrelsome. Denny Burke in his commentary says that violent describes a man who likes to brawl. And this person shouldn't be abusive or bullying. He's not quarrelsome, which literally means to be without battle, describing a person who's um, disinclined to fight, peaceful and not contentious. Like your elders and your pastors shouldn't be going around looking to fight people. I don't know why I have to say it out loud and why it needs to be on public record and in the Bible, but your elders and pastors shouldn't be going around picking fights with everybody. They shouldn't be a bully. They shouldn't be abusive. And some of you have experienced this from your other churches. And Lord willing, you'll never experience that here. And if you do, you say, Evan, 1 Timothy chapter 3, you should not be picking a fight with me. And they're not supposed to be lovers of money. 1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is what? The root of all kinds of evil. You don't want your pastor to love money. It's a bad idea because there's not much in it. And your elders shouldn't be lovers of money either. He needs to manage his household well. He needs to be the same at home as he is at church. So many of you know, of church backgrounds, you know people who are one way at church and they're another way at home. That should not be the case. 
his life in private needs to match his life in public. And it's not that all of his kids end up becoming Christians, but that if his household is unruly, right? If you're going to this house and kids are like licking the walls and eating SpaghettiOs off the floor and they're drawing all over the walls and things are just like constantly collapsing and it's dirty and it's a mess and it's a horrible place to be. Like, how can we trust that guy to run the church? Are we going to start eating communion crackers off the floor? It's not a place of love. and His home needs to be a place of love. He can't be constantly picking fights with his wife. He's got to learn to not sweat the small stuff. He can't be bullying or worse, abuse his children. And then say, I'm going to care for God's household. Paul says he must not be a recent convert or he can fall into the same kind of pride that the devil fell in in Genesis. And he must be well thought of by outsiders. This one isn't talked about enough. Your pastor and elders should be thought of well, well thought of by outsiders, non-Christians. Too many pastors, too many elders have an us versus them mentality. Us versus the government. Oh, well, the government can't tell me what to do. They can't tell us what to do. Everybody vote for the other guy. sounds like you just polarized half of the country. Us versus unbelievers. Well, you know, those people out there who are trying to get your children. Talk about that way here, about unbelievers. You don't think that's, they're going to find out? Or us versus liberals? Or us versus conservatives? I have friends who are pastors, and I've talked to them about this. Who, it's always us versus the rich. Oh, the rich. Oh, how dare they work really hard and make money and not give some to us. Yeah, I think they should be more generous too, bro. But, man, like, do you think that's what it means to be well thought of by outsiders? I'm not saying I'm perfect either. I do this stuff too. But call me out on it. See, such an attitude will never, an us versus them attitude will never make a pastor or an elder well thought of by outsiders. Which is why we ask our elders in training to give us non-Christian references. One, you have to know some non-Christians. And two, they need to think well of you. If they're like, yeah, this guy's a jerk. That's bad news. Too many pastors are jerks. Too many elders are jerks. We don't need more jerks. We need more disciples of Jesus. So, and just like the way he acts at home and church, and that should be consistent, his posture towards the world should also be one of love, service, generosity. His character needs to be consistent across the board. And while all these things should be true of all of God's people, like it's probably a good idea for you to be hospitable. It's probably a good idea for you not to pick fights with people. It's a good idea for you not to have an us versus them mentality. But godly character is the baseline for elders and pastors. Godly character is not the end zone. It's not, oh, one day he'll get there. Let's just give him time. It's the line of scrimmage. 
It's where they start. Are they men of compelling character? Yes or no? Not that they're perfect, but we start there. That's it. See, it's not whether or not you're a compelling speaker that makes you a pastor and elder. It's whether or not you're a man of compelling character. Single men should want to live faithful lives, sexually faithful lives, like their elders live sexually faithful lives. Single women should want to marry men who exhibit character like that, if God calls them to be married. Husbands and fathers in the church should want to run their households like those guys run their households. Wives and mothers should pray that their husbands lead their households the same way these men lead theirs, with love, gentleness, self-control. Their sons should want to be like them. And their daughters should want to marry men like them. And people in their neighborhoods and workplaces or in the public square should want to hear about Jesus because of them. They need to be men of compelling character. God calls his sheep, his people, to follow men of compelling character, but we are too obsessed with following leaders of compelling talent. It seems like every time, every time after a big-name pastor gets fired for failure of character, you hear people interviewed from the church, and they say something like this, yeah, we saw the major character flaws, and we decided to do nothing about it because look at all the good he was doing. So the ends justify the means. And in the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast, the host, Mike Cosper, makes this observation based on people saying that. And he asks, sure, maybe 90% of what Mark Driscoll or these other pastors were doing was good, but is it worth the 10% of the damage, the 10% of the bad and the damage that came from that? Was that worth it? Yeah, he was a compelling speaker. Yeah, he was compellingly creative. Yeah, he was compellingly entrepreneurial. We saw the character flaws, but we decided to put those things, his talent, above everything else because of all the quote-unquote good he was doing. Character is the line of scrimmage. It's where we start. It is the baseline. Do the ends justify the means if so many people are getting hurt in the process? Look, I'm not saying your pastors and elders will be perfect. Ask my children, ask my wife. I am not perfect. I don't need to ask Brittany. I don't need to ask Hannah if those guys are perfect because I've known them long enough to know they aren't. And that's okay. But are they men of character? Do they admit that they're wrong when they're wrong? Or do they just double down? Do they confess their sins? Do they ask their wives or their kids to forgive them when they said something that hurt them? Or do they justify their actions and the things that they said? Are they men who see themselves as in process of becoming like Jesus? Or do they see themselves as finished products? 
See, God knows that the sheep will reflect their shepherds. And this is true of every aspect of life, not just the church. Have you ever asked about the character of your favorite social media influencer? Have you ever? Have you ever asked, like, am I going to reflect that person if I keep listening to them? Have you ever asked about the character of your favorite politicians? Have you ever thought that maybe you'll start reflecting their attitude and their character? Have you ever asked about the character of your favorite celebrity? See, you'll become like the people who shepherd you. You'll reflect the people you listen to. You'll model your life after them. You'll reflect the the voices you value, whose advice you take, and whose expertise you seek. And you'll want to be just like them. If you listen to your cynical friends on Facebook, you will become cynical. I'm telling you now, look at me, you'll become cynical and your heart will be destroyed and your soul in the process. Well, I like, and we always do this thing where we're like, well, I, I wasn't angry about that, but my friend is, so maybe I should be angry. Like, it wasn't that big of a deal to me, but they're so angry about it. Like, maybe I should be angry too. Or you listen to podcasters who thrive off of hyping everything up and making it a bigger deal than it actually is. You'll make everything a bigger deal than it actually is. And I think in your heart of hearts, you know this because I know it too. The people who shepherd me, the people I listen to, I start to reflect them. If you hang out with dudes on the weekend who get wasted all the time, you'll eventually join in. If you follow bullying leader, people who are bu- leaders who are bullies, you'll bully people too. If you follow people who are always looking for a fight, you'll always be looking for one. And either you'll be the one starting them, or you'll think that everybody's looking to fight you. Yo, did you hear how she talked to me? Mm. Ah, not today. I'm a child of God. (laughs) Oh, you see how he disrespected me? Nah, not today. Not today. Not on Monday, man. You don't disrespect me on Monday. It's a hard day already. I had to wake up and go to my job just like everybody else, but my life is crazier How dare you talk to me that way? See, even if their talent is so great, even if it's so fantastic, what you'll end up reflecting is their character. Even if they're talented at making you laugh, or they're talented at helping you have a good time, or they're talented in calling out everybody who thinks that way and they shouldn't think that way. Even if they're really talented at that you'll end up reflecting them. We follow people with compelling talent over compelling character because it's easier. Like, I don't need to spend time with someone for me to see their talent. I just see it. 
but to get to know what they're really like, that takes time. The reason why we just go, oh, actually, David and Clayton make really good decisions. Elders, like, they seem like great guys. The stream and the sound seem to be working well today. Let's give it a couple years and see if they love their wives, how they talk to people at church. That is hard work. We don't like to do the hard work, do we? We like to take the easy way out. To see if a leader loves his wife and kids takes time. You have to spend time with them. You have to go to their house. You got to see them at events with their children. Are they just constantly like yanking their kids by the arm and screaming them out? Not that I've ever done that. But is that their constant posture towards their children? Are they always picking fights? If they're always picking fights, I got to wait around to see if that's the case. Like I know he disrespected the grocery store guy. When we went, like maybe he had a bad day. Yeah. But I have to wait to see if that's his posture, if that's his character. And so we pick people's talent over their character because we're lazy. We've taken a couple of years with Clayton and David before we put them before you as elder candidates. Why? Because we need to see their character in action. And that takes time. And it takes time and energy to dive into somebody's character. If shepherds are men of character in process of becoming like Jesus, the sheep who are God's people in process will become people of character. We want to put men of compelling character before you because we're hoping that you'll look at them and say, I want to be like them. Sheep model the lives of their shepherds. But if you're like me, you go, well, who do the shepherds model their lives after? So what do elders do? Look at 1 Peter 5, 4. And when the chief shepherd, this is in the same context, he just talked about overseers, elders, pastors, shepherding God's people. And two verses later, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. Who's the chief shepherd? Sunday school answer, Jesus. Elders lay down their lives for their people like Jesus laid down his life for them. Sheep model the lives of shepherds. Shepherds model their lives after the chief shepherd, Jesus. Jesus, who is supremely talented, more talented than anything I can do. I've never raised kids from the dead. I never called to, out in the cemetery to my friend and he just like rose out of the ground. Jesus is supremely talented, but he also is full of perfect, compelling character. People constantly want to follow Jesus. And how did he show his perfect, compelling character? He laid down his life for the sheep. He proved it. John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. Jesus loved his sheep so much, he was willing to die for them. 
Jesus loved you so much he was willing to die for you. As stubborn and as difficult you and I can be, he still loved us so much that he died for us. And because of what he's done, pastors and elders must do the same for each other and for the sheep. And the sheep modeling the good shepherd lay down their lives for their shepherds and each other. See, because of what Jesus did for all of us, who claim his name, who put our faith in him, we lay down our lives for each other. See, in some models of church leadership, everything runs up. It's all about the pastor, or it's all about the elders. The pastor's Moses. He's like Moses. He runs Israel. Nobody ever talks about how Moses also needed elders, but he's Moses. Or he's like a CEO. So the elders, what ends up happening, the elders function like a board rather than the shepherds. And the elders and pastors, or the pastors particularly, live these posh life, lifestyles. Or when it, when it runs up, every, they become disconnected from the lives of their people, either as celebrities who can't hang out with commoners, or they become distant bureaucrats. As for the sheep, what happens to the sheep in those moments? Yeah, volunteer them is high. Like people volunteer all the time because the pastor needs to live a posh lifestyle so we can't expect him to do any work except show up on Sundays and his with a great message. So the people end up being burned out for the needs of the pastor or the elders. And in some models, everything runs down. Everything's run by professional staff so volunteerism is low and people consume rather than covenant people consume rather than give. But the biblical model is different. Everyone together is in process becoming like Jesus together by laying down their lives for each other. Can you imagine what Liberty Northeast would look like if we all were laying down our lives for each other? Who could avoid wanting to come here? And elders and pastors are supposed to be men of compelling character who oversee the church and they lay down their lives for the sheep and empower the sheep as they grow and more and more into the image of Jesus. And the sheep, seeing the character of these men, offer their gifts and abilities and model their lives after these men. So Timothy Whitmer in his book, The Shepherd Leader, he says the shepherds do four things. They know, feed, lead, and protect the sheep. They need to know the sheep. They should be worshiping alongside of you serving alongside of you. They should be in your home meetings. They should come to events. They should hang with you. They should grab lunch with you. They also feed you, not food, although that can help, can happen, but preaching and teaching and also serving things like communion to you. They need to lead you. You receive them and they make decisions on your behalf. You vote and say, yes, we'll take these guys as our elders, as our representatives, and they make decisions. You know who's made decisions over the past year since the start of the pandemic? Those guys. They don't have official titles. But they say, we're laying our lives down for the sheep. We're making decisions. We have to move the church forward. And we lead this church not only in making those kinds of decisions, but also leading them spiritually. Where do we want to take our church? What are our sermon series going to be about? How are home meetings going? And they're called to protect you as well against false doctrine and against other f- forces. The guys make decisions about masks not because we are succumbing to the government 
It's part of protecting. It's hard. You might disagree with it. I, heck, I might disagree with it. But their goal is to protect you as well. Why do we lock doors at Third Reformed? To protect you guys. Why do we lock the kids' door when it starts? To protect them. You know who made the decision to do that? These guys. And so what you can do for them, what you can do for me, you can do for these guys, I want you to pray for them. I ask you to serve them. Check in on them. They need meals. Drop off meals. I'm not going to, if this is me, spoiler alert, both guys are having their first kid this year. Jump up, step up, drop meals off. Offer the babysit when the time comes. But model them. Are these men of compelling character? Should you be modeling them? And lay your lives down for them as they lay, lay their lives down for you. And lay down your lives for each other. It'll make their lives a lot easier. So I invite you to consider, are David and Cleden men of compelling character? You're stuck with me, but you get to vote on them. <laughs> Do they meet these qualifications? Do you trust them to know you, feed you, lead you, and protect you? Will they take the ball, like a wall in soccer, to the face for you? To protect you from false teaching? If you think so, pray for them, support them, and I encourage you to vote to receive them if that's the case on September 12th. But let's pray and we'll finish our service. Jesus, you are the great shepherd who knows, feeds, leads, and protects his sheep. Thank you for setting up structures in our church to do the same. We pray that for David and Clayton as they are being assessed over the next couple weeks by the network and as they are voted on on September 12th. I pray that you would guide that process. And Lord, the beauty of understanding scripture is we know you've already decided what's going to happen. Not only with this vote on, December, on uh, September 12th, but the life of our church. You already know. You've already planned it. And so we take comfort in that. Be with us as we think and pray. And as we enter into communion, may we remember the great shepherd, Jesus, who laid his life down for us as we take this measly bread and wine today. We pray this in your name. Amen.